with that, let me go ahead and invite you now to open God's Word together. First, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're at today. We are continuing in our framework series. This, this, this framework of how the Old Testament builds and, and points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So, so we're looking at the foundational, or rather the, the weight-bearing walls of the Old Testament. You take them out and the whole thing falls, and we're going. And what we're saying here, and we've been saying is, as we look at the narrative arc of the whole Bible, is that we, that, that the Bible ha- is the best story. It is the ultimate story. It's the story that every other good story in the universe echoes. Did you know that? Like every superhero movie that you ever watch is a deep cry for Jesus. Like every movie that is the top grossing uh, for the last umpteen years, if you look at the storyline, look at the narrative plot, there, there is an echo for redemption. There's an echo for Jesus. And, and you don't even have to be a Christian to just have this longing in your heart. It's, it's what St. Augustine would say, uh, our, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So when you go into the movie, it doesn't matter if you're a postmodern relativist saying, I don't believe in truth, I don't believe in good and evil, I don't believe in ultimate purpose. You go into that theater, and you will, and the lights will get dark, and the, the, sound, the bass will hit you in the chest, and the, the music and the score, and the storyline will begin to play out, and, and you'll see that there was a, a creation when li- life was good, there is a fall, and, and something has gone terribly wrong, and then a hero or a heroine or a people rise up, and, and redemption begins to unfold on the screen, and, and you're longing for that redemption in that moment, you're cheering for them, and you're, you get caught up in it. And eventually, through much sacrifice, sometimes even death, the the hero delivers and and things are put right again. In fact, they're put better than they were in the beginning. That's the Bible story. That's what every great story echoes. And so... uh, we're just saying, let's, let's turn to that story. Let's, let's wrap our lives around that story. That's what we've been looking at. We looked at creation. We looked at fall. And then we saw that the slow but steady plan of redemption begins to unfold. Genesis 3.15. He will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. And, and they had to wonder, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? And then God shows up in Genesis chapter 12 to a guy named Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you and through you, you'll be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And there's a hint. Redemption is coming through this guy named Abraham. Then Moses comes and and he delivers his people out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery. And there's sacrifice of the firstborn son and the blood of the lamb. And there's a hint. And it's getting a little bit more and more clear. Well, today we're going to look at the, the kingdom. The king of, the, uh, of a guy named David in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to look at how the kingdom resonates in Scripture. Now, as Americans, we, we've got a problem with this, though. Our cultural DNA tells us we don't like kings. <laughs> like the last king to rule over us was a guy named George III, 1776. And we didn't like him that much. We revolted. We don't want you to be king. We love our individual freedom, right? That's, that's what we say. But it's not so much that we don't want a king. It's just that we want to be king. We want to be on the throne of our life. Now, now other parts of the world, uh, they have a, a more respect or affinity towards kings, right? Like they put on some good weddings, 
sometimes, right? And we get enamored by that. You know, when, when, we, lived, when we lived in Asia, we, uh, we spent a lot of time in Thailand. We, we took about a dozen teams there to serve in Thailand. Uh, my family and I even lived in Thailand for several months as we were adopting our Thai daughter from there. So we have a Thai daughter. But, but when we got there, we realized that something was different. Like, the vast majority of the people were wearing these bright yellow shirts. Everyone had the same shirt. We're like, what is the deal with that? So we began to ask around, what's the deal with the, the bright yellow shirts? And the, they would all say, oh, it's to honor the king. Like, what, are you serious? Like, are you forced to do this? This seems like you're forced to. No, we love the king. Like, really? You love the king. King Rama the Ninth. And, and um, so I asked my daughter this week. I'm like, really? Why, why, do, why do Thai people love King Rama the Ninth? He died in 2016. But he had reigned for 70 years. Um, and, and so I just asked, why, why the love? Like, is the love legitimate one? And why? She said, oh, absolutely. All Thai people loved King Rama the Ninth. Because when he was just 18 years old, he, he became king of Thailand in 1946, right after World War II, and the war, the, the war had torn that country apart. And he came as the king, but he came with his education to come and help the people. He came and he showed the people how to rebuild the land and restore their lives and to, to plant rice fields and plants and, and re- renew the land. And she said, and it wasn't just that he told us, he joined us. He, he came and he would get into the rice fields. The king would get muddy with the people. He said he was so humble. Though he was king, he never left the people to do their own thing. He was always with them. So when there was a, a big rescue effort at one point, he, uh, he joined the rescue effort. And, and he was always with the people. And so we love King Rama the Ninth. And I was like, man, I can't even imagine that. Like a, as an American in our hyper-polarized kind of political environment, can you imagine that? Like, hey everybody, it's Tuesday, put on your MAGA hat. Some of you are like, amen, other of you threw up a little bit in your mouth. And others are like, wait, you mean we don't all vote vote the same? No, we don't all vote the same. And that's okay. But but we we just can't uh, fathom like a love for the king. But even King Rama, after he died in 2016, the the country went into a year-long formal mourning period. And for a year, his, his body laid in state. And then uh, at the end of the year, in, in Buddhist custom, they uh, cremated him. And the, the morning came to an end. But they, they just loved this guy. But he, was the, but he was just a constitutional monarch. Meaning, he had a lot of ceremonial power and, and symbolic power. But, but not, like, not like the ancient Near East, where, where kings actually ruled. And, and had control over all things. That's what you need to understand as we turn our attention and look at the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of David. Second Samuel chapter 7 is where we'll hang out. Let me just catch us up by way of the story. Well, we, we left Exodus last week and after Moses, he handed over the reins of leadership to a guy named Joshua. And Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land, conquering God's enemies and establishing the people in the land. After that, there was a period of what's called Judges. There's a book called Judges. And the Judges would, God would rise up to, to lead the people. But there was this downward spiral in the people. 
continuing to rebel, continuing to turn their back on God and, and just go further and further away. So that the last line in the book of Judges is, is so sad. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like 2019. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, then the book of 1 Samuel starts. God, Samuel is born. God establishes him as the last judge. And in the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, the people come to Samuel and they say, we, we want a king over us. Like all the other nations, we want a king to reign over us. And at first, Samuel is personally offended, like a rejection of him. But God assures Samuel, it's not a rejection of you, Samuel. It's a rejection of me. Because God had promised to be their king. God had promised to be with them, to go before them and behind them, to, to deliver them and to be with them and protect them. And they said, no, we don't need that. We don't want that. We want like those other nations have. They have kings that rule the people. And so Samuel warned him. He said, hey, if, if that happens, just know this king is going to mistreat you. This king is going to uh, demand of you uh, taxes and he's going to take your sons and put them in the army and he's going to take your daughters as his wives and he's going to take all your artisans and it's going to be a hardship on you. And they're like, we don't care. We don't care. Just give us a king. That's what we want. So the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, big, strong guy, good leader. Uh, everyone looked at him. He was humble at first. And they're like, yes, we finally have a king. But it didn't take long before that got to his head. And, and he became prideful, and he became insecure, and he became a wicked king. And God withdrew his spirit from Saul. And God said, I'm going to look for a man after my own heart. And he finds David, a little shepherd boy, attending the sheep. And he says, he anoints him, and he says, you're going to be king. But it's a long run-up before he eventually gets to king. Now that could be a whole 10 week series on David's life as itself, but we're going to come towards the latter part of his life in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when we pick up the story about the God's promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to, the, to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Okay, what's going on there? Well, well, there is finally some peace and some prosperity in the land. David has built himself a palace. It's got cedar on the walls. It would have been very beautiful for that time. It would have smelled very nicely. And David is looking around and he's feeling pretty good about himself. And he's feeling quite grateful to God. And so he looks out down on the city of Jerusalem and he sees this tent. It's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was given by God to the people as a visible, tangible symbol of God's presence with His people. Now God is transcendent. He is uh, beyond all creation. And yet He is also imminent. And in special ways, He's imminent with His people. And for them, as they wandered in the wilderness and as they went into the land, the symbol was this tabernacle. This, this place where God dwelt with His people. Now it's hundreds of years old at this point. And David looks at his cedar palace and he looks down at this tent. It's threadbare by now. It's, it's kind of worn out. And David's like, you know what? We should really do something about that. Like, I live in a palace. God lives in a tent. Like, all the other countries, all the other surrounding nations, what they do for their God is they build a temple to show the greatness of their God. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build the best temple. 
just to show the world, man, this, how great is our God. And so he goes to Nathan the prophet, who's like kind of the pastor of the country. And Nathan does what, what a lot of pastors would do when the millionaire comes in and says, hey, I just really want to bless the church. Nathan's like, go for it, brother. The Lord be with you, bless you, and keep you. That's what he says, right? Verse 3. Nathan said to the king, Go do that, all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He's like, I don't even need to pray about that. That sounds like an awesome plan. Yeah, let's get him a temple. That would be awesome. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So he's not even praying about it, but God's like, Hey, Nathan, need to get your attention here. Verse 5. Go and tell my servant David... Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So, so what God is saying is, look, I didn't ask for this. He's revealing the central principle in the Bible, the incarnational principle. Our God who is a God who is with us. And he says, look, I, I have, with my people, I'm not asking, I didn't ask for a palace. I, I was present in the tent because uh, I was present with my people. And when my people didn't have safety and security, I didn't have safety and security. When my people were wandering, I was wandering with them. And so this is just God being God with his people. Verse 8, now therefore thus says, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. God reminds David where he came from. Remember where you came from, David. You were a shepherd. The lowest of the low of the social status. And now you're a king. How did you get there, David? I did that for you. You're not going to bless me. I'm going to, I've blessed you. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, uh, I think David was about to cross a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David's like, man, you know what? I'm going to do God a favor. God needs a house. Oh, it's going to be awesome. And it'll be great. And, and He'll be glorified. I mean, I'll get a little bit of glory too, but you know, I love this. I love this because it just reminds us of something that's even important for us as we do the church planning campaign. You do not do God favors. God does not need your money. God doesn't need anything from any of us. God doesn't need Redemption Castle Rock, doesn't need Redemption Parker, doesn't need any churches to achieve His purposes, which is the, the fame and glory and renown of His name. God does not need you. You're not doing God a favor when you go and take envelope number 288. God, I took the biggest one. God's like, oh no, thank you. I, I need $41,600. I hope this group of people over here, after all what I've done for them, maybe they could give me some change. Don't do that. Here's the beautiful truth. God's purposes are unstoppable. You can live a selfish, self-centered, American dream, live for yourself kind of life, and God's still going to accomplish His purposes. 
You never have to care about the mission of God. You never have to pray for a missionary. You never have to go on the mission. God's going to accomplish His purposes. The good news of the gospel is that you as a redeemed person gets invited to be a part of the mission. And that should, that should cause you to celebrate. That should at least cause you to say amen. amen. For real. You don't do God favors. God does the blessing. And He invites us to be a part of Him. And even when He invites us to be a part of His mission, He is blessing us. This is the grace principle. This is what's amazing. Look at verse 10. He says, And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones. I'm going to bless you. This is an echo of the promise to Abraham. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, check this out. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I I I love this. David's like, hey, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to make you a house, God. God says, no. Does a play on words. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you into a dynasty, David. This shows you that not all religions are the same because every other religious system is, I'll make God a house so that He will bless me. So we have from King Tut in Pharaoh. Uh, he built a, a, a temple for the god Ra. And when he built it, then a, a priest came and gave an oracle and said, to Tut, we have it inscribed, to Tut, since you have made this house, O King Tut, live forever. You did this, and now the gods bless you. That's how every other religious system in the world works. What must I do? What must I give? What must I pray? How must I live so that the blessings of God can come on me? But the gospel is different than that. The blessings come on you in spite of you because He's a God who blesses. He's a God of grace. This is why we say on repeat here at Redemption Parker, it's okay to not be okay. The grace of God will meet you where you're at. No matter where you're at today. It's okay. None of us are okay, by the way. So it's okay to not be okay because God's grace meets us first. And that changes everything about us. So it's the incarnation principle. It's the grace principle. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who, will, who shall come from your body. So he says, this is actually going to come from you. This is going to be a real kingdom. It's going to come from your line. We know Solomon comes and takes, takes the next step. And I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. So Solomon is going to be the one that builds the temple for God. Just not David. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Solomon's kingdom. But then it says, forever. How is that possible? Solomon, the throne of your kingdom is going to be established forever. There's, there's some problems with that. That there's a sin problem, which causes a death problem, which causes a forever problem. But, but God is saying to David that this blessing is going to last forever. How is that possible? Well, let's go on. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. So you don't have to turn but just a, a page in your Bible to see that 
that this thing goes south pretty quickly as far as earthly kingdoms go. David and Bathsheba, you can read about that on your own. Solomon, and there's some good things, but there's some wicked things. Then Solomon's kids. And so within just a few generations, they have turned their back on God, on this promise. The kingdom splits into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And God continues to send them prophets and warning them, say, come back, come back, disciplining them. So much, it gets so bad that in the year 722 BC, this was written about 1000 BC, about 300 years later, uh, God sends the, the wicked Assyrians into northern Israel to conquer and destroy Israel and scatter them completely. Fast forward to 597, eventually the wickedness of the kings of the south gets to a point where God sends the Babylonians in and he takes them out and takes them off to captivity for 70 years. Now they come back after 70 years, a, a humble, broken people, but they don't have a kingdom at that point. They, they don't have anything at that point. They're, they're being dominated and ruled by other kings from there on out. Verse 15, he says, But my steadfast love... That's a key word in the Old Testament. It's hesed. My unconquerable, hesed, unperishable, unstoppable love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever. There it is again. Before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, how is that possible? We still have the problem of sin, death, and eternity at stake. Well, if you fast forward in the story about 300 years to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying and, and the Assyrian army is literally on the horizon. They're about to come and destroy God's people. In the midst of this, God sends him a vision. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on, upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you see what Isaiah says? Oh, the promise to David will come true. Oh, it's going to come true. The king is going to come. He's going to be wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God. He's coming. Well, that's in the year 700 B.C. Fast forward a few more hundred years, prophets still come. But when Malachi writes his last word in the Old Testament, the last book, last line of the Old Testament, the word of God goes silent. No more prophets, no more words. And for 400 years, the people of God, longing for the promise, longing for the, the culmination of all things, live in silence. Imagine that. 400 years. Nothing. And over that time, a groaning, a longing. We know from from extra-biblical records, there was this desire, there was this 
uh, pleading with God, please, Lord, send the anointed one. Send the Messiah. Send the Christ. Send him. 400 years. Nothing. Then we get to the very first line of the very first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to how Matthew opens up his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew says, oh, the time has come. The promises are about to come true. Everything that you've been longing for is coming in Jesus. How is that possible? How does it fulfill the incarnational and grace principle? Well, John tells us in his gospel, John 1.14, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means he tabernacled. He, he put on the ragged clothes. He, he, he came and he lived with his people. He says, dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the son of David. The fulfillment of all the promises. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Jesus does that. How does he do it? He steps down from his throne in glory. He puts on flesh. He lives among his people. He gets his hands dirty. He lives with them. Like King Rama of Thailand, who, who though he was king, didn't live like a king, but lived with the people. But Jesus didn't just come to show the people how to live. Jesus didn't just come to help the people. Here's how you do it. He didn't just come to get muddy in the rice fields. Because again, the problems that David faced was sin, death, and eternity. Jesus came to conquer those enemies. So while King Rama is praised and honored by all the Thai people, this king came down and lived a life with the people and he was rejected by the people. He didn't just get muddy on the cross. He got bloody to pay for our sin. And in that moment, the king took on our sin and shame and he conquered our enemy of sin. And he died. But three days later, he conquered our enemy of death and he rose again. And because he is both God and man, he conquered the problem of forever. And forever he is king of kings and lord of lords. You know, historians tell us that the decisive moment of World War II was June 6, 1944. D-Day. When the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy at great cost and great sacrifice and great courage and they established a beachhead in the mainland of Europe. Historians say when that moment happened, the eventual V-Day, which happened a year later, was inevitable, was unstoppable. Christmas is D-Day. Christmas is God establishing a beachhead in our midst and saying, I claim this for the kingdom and beginning to work from there on out so that V-Day is absolutely secured in Christ. Oh, there's some battles to go on. Like the battle of bulls. There's some battles that you face. There's some, some struggles that you're going to go on. But, but ultimately and finally, we know that V-Day is secured. That's why in the book of Revelation... It points to the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the root of Jesse, the root of King David. So, it's been established. He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. And He reigns over all. 
That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1.15, He transferred us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You are kingdom people if you are in Christ the King. You are kingdom people. There's some massive implications. If Christ is really King, King of Kings, there's some massive implications. One, that should just cause us a humble, deep, deeper than we've ever experienced gratitude to God. If we read the rest of 2 Samuel 7, David's response to this revelation is just humility. Praise. Lord, may it be so. I I thought I was going to do something for you, and now you're going to do this for me. Praise you, God. And so there should be a humble gratitude. But if He is King of kings and Lord of lords, that means He demands your absolute allegiance. Absolute. There cannot be any part of your life where you say, that's off limits to God. God, I want you to be king, but not in this relationship. I want you to be king, but not with my money. That's my money. I want you to be king, but not with with the lifestyle choices I make. No, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He demands all of it. But He's a good king. And because He's a good king, that means we have hope. He's a king that has conquered his enemies and our enemies. And we can hope and trust in him. There's No matter what you're going through on this side of eternity, we can, like Paul, say it's light and momentary. Because in the end, we know V-Day is secured. It secures our joy because he's a good king. He's a good king that not only transfers us into his kingdom, makes us citizens, he makes us sons and daughters of the king. This is good news. This is news worth praising. But there's one more implication. If we are God's kingdom people, living in God's kingdom, then we need to be about the king's business. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is how it's going to be fulfilled. The king, the son of David, son of Abraham is here. And then the very last lines of Matthew. Jesus comes after his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yes, it has. You're king of kings and lord of lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Okay, Jesus, so what, what do you want? Therefore, you go. Make kingdom citizens. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them about everything about the kingdom. He says, but But when you do that, remember the incarnation principle. Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. So God's people, in God's kingdom, on God's mission, may God make that true of us here. Let me pray for us. So Father, we we thank you for your amazing grace, far beyond we could ever think or imagine, that your promise to David would have a deeper, wider, fuller impact on us than even on David. Jesus, I pray that we would joyfully bow the knee and confess that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We know that a day is coming where you will come back and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that you are Lord. But some will do it out of joy and others out of submission, forced submission. Lord, let us be a people that live joyfully in your kingdom. Let us be a people that live not for our own kingdom, but for your kingdom on mission with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.